Chapter Two of The Man with the Black Cord by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mother's Fear. A week had passed since the disappearance of Leopold Erlock, and still the clouds of mystery hung black over the occurrence in the greenhouse. The local authorities seemed perilous to unravel the riddle. A thorough and careful search had been made of the premises and the entire vicinity, but Leopold Erlock, living or dead, was not to be found. Nor was there any clue as to how he could have disappeared from the locked room. No arrests were made, as there was no charge upon which to rest suspicion. The occurrence was the talk of Inzersdorf and the neighboring towns, and the Viennese papers gave considerable prominence to it as the mystery thickened. One chill wet evening, a week after Mr. Erlock's disappearance, Theresa Tunner came hastily down the stairs and out of the door of a tall tenement house in a poor quarter of Vienna. She glanced furtively about her in the hallway and at the door, and seemed relieved as she saw how empty was the ill-lighted street. Mrs. Tunner's face was gray, and the glance of her weary, reddened eyes wavered as she drew her shawl closely around her and hurried along in the shadow of the houses. The woman looked old and haggard crushed by some overpowering grief or anxiety. The distance she had to traverse was short, but it seemed long to her troubled mind. A block or two further on she paused before the door of a cellar coffee room, one of the gathering places for the market people who came here in the early morning after bringing their wares from the country. At most other times of the day the dingy, unattractive little room was empty. When Mrs. Tunner descended the few steps and opened the door timidly, she found herself alone in the low-ceilinged, long, narrow space. A single gas flame threw a tiny radius of light beyond which was darkness. The room was empty, and Mrs. Tunner came in so quietly that the people she could hear and see moving about in the kitchen beyond did not notice her entrance. She took a seat in the darkest corner, a place from which she could watch the door. She sat there, waiting, waiting in impatient anxiety, her eyes fastened, as if hypnotized, on the spot of brightness made by the metal doorknob. Finally, fifteen or twenty minutes later, the shining knob turned, and the door flew open. A young man entered hastily, slamming the door roughly behind him. He was tall and broad-shouldered, although thin in figure, and his smooth-shaven face, even in the dim light, showed signs of dissipation. The furtive glance of his keen eyes was lacking in the candor and brightness which should belong to his years. Carl! The voice came out of the darkness, and he peered through the gloom, until he caught sight of the woman sitting there. "'Oh, you're there, are you?' he answered angrily. "'Why didn't you creep into a rat-hole and be done with it?' "'That is what I would like to do,' said Mrs. Tunner, bitterly. "'Come over here to me.' The young man laughed and replied in a lower tone, "'Not much. I'm not over-anxious to sit right under the gaslight, either. And if we stay in that corner, they'll light the lamp right over your head. If we go nearer the other light, it will be still dark enough, and they're not likely to burn extra gas for us, too.' He moved over to another place, and Mrs. Tunner followed him. She sat so that she had the light at her back and could see his face clearly. It was a face of good lines, which would have been noticeably attractive had it not showed all too plainly the marks of a life of dissipation. The woman's eyes seemed to drink in its every feature with a look of love that was like physical agony. In spite of the hollows drawn by years of sorrow and toil in her own face, there was enough resemblance between the two to mark them as mother and son. "'Did you just come in, too?' he asked. "'No, I've been here some time.' "'And no one saw you yet?' he continued. 
When she shook her head in reply, he drummed on the table with a knife, and the door at the end of the room opened. "'Why, there's someone here!' exclaimed an astonished voice, as a young woman peered out from the kitchen. Carl Tunner ordered two coffees, and when the woman had returned to the kitchen, he addressed his mother again in a low but impatient tone. "'Did you bring the money?' Mrs. Tunner straightened up suddenly, the sadness in her face giving away to a look of determination mingled with burning anxiety. "'Why are you going away now? Why do you have to go so suddenly? What is it that is driving you away? Just now. Now that—' She stopped and looked at him, her whole troubled soul in her eyes. Carl stared at her at first in astonishment, then his eyes dropped, and he moved his hand mechanically over the tablecloth. "'Answer me,' commanded Mrs. Tunner. The boy raised his head again with a look of defiance. "'I'm going away because I happen to want to, because I can't find anything to do here, because I have to go away, if you must know. Any more you'd like to ask?' "'Carl!' "'Yes, that's my name.' "'Then you have sunk as low as that?' "'Pretty low, and it's your fault. Mine! My fault! Who's else? Who's going to help me, if not my own mother?' "'Haven't I helped you many times? But your affection seems to have a limit. You said just now—' Carl Tunner broke off his speech as the woman came out of the kitchen with the tray. After serving them, she started towards the next gaslight, but Carl motioned to her that it would not be necessary. The woman, who was quite pretty, smiled in answer to his impudent glance and left them alone again. Carl put his spoon in his cup and began to pick off the skin formed by the hot milk as carefully as if he hadn't another thought in the world. His mother clenched her fists and almost hissed through her closed teeth. "'What's the matter?' said Carl lazily. "'Everything,' she began, in a tone that was low but piteously hard. "'Yes, you are right. There is a limit to my affection. I seem now to be able to see clearer than a mother usually does. I have always been able to see your faults, and I see them all the more clearly now. Try as I may, I can find no excuse for them. You have not inherited them, and I have done all I could to bring you up properly, to make an honest man of you. You have never heard me utter an untruth.' You have never seen me idle or exacting, and yet you are a liar. You are lazy, seeking only your own pleasure, no matter at what price. No, don't interrupt me. If you don't want to drive me to despair, let me talk now. I sit here like a beggar woman, with my son who is no better than a tramp and a vagabond. Mother, he hissed. It is the truth, my son, she exclaimed bitterly. You, the grandson of a general, the son of a noble father, you are nothing but a tramp today, perhaps even worse much worse. Mother, what do you mean? What is it that you think me capable of, then? Carl's voice shook with anger, in which there was a note of fear. I believe you, now, to be capable of anything. The word was like a knife thrust, and the young man shuddered as he sat there, his face drawn, his hands clenched. Suddenly the blood that had rushed up to the roots of his hair went back again, leaving his face white. He leaned back in his chair, his hands dropped helplessly in his lap. The terror in his face was reflected in that of his mother. "'Capable of anything,' she murmured, with pale lips. They sat for some few minutes in silence, a silence that was heavy with an unspoken horror. Finally the woman regained control of herself. "'I believe you capable of anything,' she said again. "'Of course you know why I am no longer in the greenhouse, why I am now living in my former cook.' Again she paused. "'Now you might speak, and yet you will not,' she continued, her lips trembling. "'I can imagine why you sent that suspicious-looking messenger to ask me to meet you here. You didn't dare to write me. 
You suppose that I would be under suspicion, that I would be watched, because I am your mother. Someone may have seen you the various times that you have visited me. It was five times in all, and the last time, in that dreadful night, you came without letting me know beforehand. You climbed over the wall, and you went out that way, too, because I could not get the key to the gate. Her voice dropped more and more towards the end of her sentence, and her strength would have failed her, but for the firmness of her will. Her son did not answer, did not attempt, to defend himself. "'It is only now that I am forced to believe you capable of anything,' she began again, her voice growing harder. "'Now that you try to make me the instrument of your greed, of your criminal desires, now that you dare to demand of me that I should ask Erlock for money, and said that if he would not give it to me, you would get it from him. I do not know what it was you intended to do to obtain money from a miser like Erlock. I did not ask you. I turned you from the door. When you had left me, I fainted. I do not know how long I remained in that condition, and I do not know what happened during that time. I realize only now that you are the sort of man who would force his way into a strange house to get what he wanted. She stopped and sat still, scarcely breathing. Still there was no answer from her son. I must get out into the air. I am ill, she murmured. She put her hand into the pocket of her dress and laid a purse on the table. Here are five hundred crowns. You can get away with this. I have no more. I have helped you too often. In the purse is a slip with the address of Katie's sister. Write to this address when you have found some place where you are safe. Carl, I am going now. Haven't you a word for me? Carl Tunner did not raise his head. He had neither a look nor a word for the mother who had sacrificed everything for him, for the mother who, brought up in a home of luxury, had worked for years in menial positions to support him in idleness. She crept slowly to the door and turned back with a last look at her son, a look of unutterable love and unutterable sorrow. Then she went out into the wind and the rain, glad of the unfriendly elements that gave her strength again. Outside she lingered for a few moments, hoping Carl would follow her. When he did not come, she feared to attract attention by standing there, and walked on slowly until she came to the open door of a church. Here, in a dark corner, she sank to her knees and breathed out the anguish of her soul in a sobbing, passionate prayer. Carl Tunner sat for some time where she had left him, motionless. Finally he realized that he could not stay there forever. When he raised his head, his eyes looked dull and lifeless. He stretched out his hand to draw the purse to him, and saw through its red silk meshes that it contained a white slip of paper as well as the money. He opened the purse hastily and took out the paper with hands that trembled. He could not read the few words that were written there, for his eyes were dim with tears. Finally he managed to make out the writing. My son, my love, my prayers, and my forgiveness will follow you wherever you may go. I am not strong enough to do what I should do, perhaps, and to accuse you openly. Save yourself, and let me know when you are in security. But try to save your soul, too, that I may not repent of my great love for you, your mother. Carl Tunner sat looking down at the slip for some time. Finally, he put it back in the purse, laid a piece of money on the table, and went out into the street. He wandered aimlessly about in the rain and the wind, heedless of the discomfort. His face was pale, and his eyes dimmed with sadness. Suddenly he realized what he was doing, and looking about, found himself outside of the city on the edge of an empty lot. "'Ridiculous! How foolish of me!' he murmured and turned brusquely. But in spite of himself, his step dragged again, and the same sentence that circled through his brain and had driven him out into the night 
stood clear as if in letters of fire before his inward vision again. He dropped down on a stone by the wayside and buried his face in his hands, groaning aloud. She believes me capable of anything, and, oh God, it is true, it is true. End of chapter 2